0: So, welcome. Welcome to our new series. It's called The Soul's Journey. And um, it's going to be a class based upon the book of Tanya. We're going to work from the first chapter all the way through. but We're going to work on a thematic level. In other words, the thematic process of Tanya. Rather than doing a textual. The reason why I decided to do that was because if we're going to do text and you miss one week, it creates a problem. But rather if we can go ahead and make every single week a different theme and just flow through the chapters, even if you miss one week, it'll help you to come back the other weeks and it won't be, you know, I'm lost, what happened? Uh, Nevertheless, with that said, obviously because working through the thematic process, if you're coming to every class, and what happens is that the sum becomes larger you know the sum total becomes larger than all its parts so you're getting the whole picture of where the altar is taking us so i want to just start this time before we get into the first theme the human binary code i wanted to just share with you what the purpose of tanya is so the altar writes a very clear reason why he wrote the tanya so you need to know what the person intends for his work to accomplish is it academic is it legal is it you know what the rambam makes a book that's a legal book he tells you i want you to know the 613 commandments so if you study my book you'll know the 613 commandments um that's not what the altar is here the altar is not saying that if you study this you'll understand torah rather the altar says if you study this you'll understand but one verse of the torah and he quotes a verse in Deuteronomy where Moses tells the Jewish people that ki lecha hadavar me'od. You should know that it's exceedingly near to you to be able to do everything that you need to do. So it's not about learning the laws. It's not about learning different processes, different gateways. It's just simply learning the journey of how a person who has both the Yetzer Tov, the godly inclination, the good inclination, and the Yetzer Hara, the one who has the evil inclination, could be batting more than 50-50. Okay? So, so that is what the Altidaba writes on his cover page. So now we know what he's coming to do. He's not coming to explain to you the parsha. He's not coming to teach you the laws here. You know what? I'll shut this off too, so we all don't have that issue. He's not coming to teach you the laws. He, it's very clear exactly what he wants from you. He wants from you specifically to know how to live the life of being tempted and never succumbing. On top of that, the mentors that teach Tanya, which is a hand-me-down from the first generation Delta Rebbe, say that the altar Rebbe also, because of the wording that he uses, is also hinting to you that and he says it straight, we'll get to there in chapter four and five, he says clearly that your observance depends upon your emotions. Love is the foundation of all the 248 commandments that you must do. And fear is the foundation of all the 365 prohibitions that you're not supposed to do. You're not allowed to do. Okay, so he's also talking about creating love and fear. And we're gonna see, he gets straight to that. But the first thing he wants to lay down on the table is, is it possible for me, Who's constantly hearing two voices, two little angels on my shoulders? One's telling me, YOLO, you only live once. So what are you what are you trying to control yourself? Live life and pleasure and joy. And the other one's telling me, YOLO, you only live once. You better do it right. And those two voices are constantly, the minute something happens, I hear those two voices. Now, if you know about the gambling, those who are always trying to figure out the black and the red, and you know, and the percentages, and how can I have, you know, seven times in a row black? You've got it at some point. So they try to figure out a whole system. How? Listen, it's true that every single roll is a separate roll, so it can always roll on black or red for the rest of history. But we know scientifically that it's probably not going to happen that way. We know scientifically that what's going to probably happen is that there's a percentage of how many times this and how many times that. Now, the Alter Rebbe wants to show you that that isn't true when it comes to living life. So the biggest problem that the Alter Rebbe is starting off in the first chapter is, is defining the word benoni. So there's the righteous, there's the evil, and there's the intermediate. Simply speaking, the Alter Rebbe brings up the opinion that says that a tzaddik is someone who is more meritorious than he is sinning. And how does the the wise author ever quote that there is such an opinion? Because in Maimonides, when we talk about the high holidays, that's what it works on. The scale. If it's tilting more to the sins, then immediately there's one verdict. If it's tilting more to the good deeds, the mitzvot, it immediately goes to a second verdict. And then he says that if it's half-half, that's why you have the 10 days to go ahead and tip the scale. So the Altarebbe explains very quickly that when we call that person a tzaddik, it's not a name that truly identifies who he is. We're just using that borrowed term to say Tzadik Bidino. He, worked, he walked out meritorious from his court case, but not that he is a Tzadik. And then the Alt-Rebbe brings entire proofs on page one to say that you should know that a benigni cannot have even one sin. Because if he has or she has even one sin, then while they have the sin, they're an absolute evil person, even for one sin. While if they do teshuva, then the sin is completely eradicated, wiped away, even to the level of transformed into a merit, because that became the boost to bring you closer to God, rather than separate you for God. So then, once you've done teshuva on the sin, you're a tzaddik. Thus the question becomes, when are you a benenik? If you don't have any sins, you're a tzaddik. If you have even one sin, you're a roshah. And when you do teshuva on that one sin, you're back to being a tzaddik. So what's the benenik? What's the intermediate? And then the Al Terebe goes on to explain, and that's what he's going to bring out that the difference between a tzaddik and a is not in their actions. They both don't sin. The question is whether they can conquer the heart. And we're going to go on with this. He's going to show, he's going to draw you the whole map where the godly soul and the good inclination is in your brain, the mind. From there, he tries to control the heart, have your emotions follow your common good sense. And the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, is in the heart. And from there, he tries to dominate your whole body. As the Talmud says, the eyes see, the art, the heart wants, and then it drives the body to act. So the difference in a and a is not what he or she is doing. It's what he or she is going through internally. The two voices. Now, the theme that I want to present to you just on this first piece of the tanya is the binary code of the human, the binary code, the binary code, everything breaks down into two. Computers, as we know it today, breaks down into a binary code, X and zeros. So we're gonna talk about about the binary code. In other words, why is the alter so bent on sharing that you have two different souls? Why can't we say you're just one human being and sometimes the heart wins, and sometimes the mind wins. That's what we usually feel about it. You know, oh, I just gave into my heart. Oh, I had mind over matter. We don't look at it as we're two people. We're really two different people. We're Avrami number one, the head. vermi number two, the heart. And they battle. That's not the way we look at it. We look at it as there's one of vermi, and in vermi, there's a, a war going on between the mind and the heart. And yet, al basically is saying, if you look at it from the soul standpoint, you're two different people. There's two different voices. One soul. No, two different souls. souls. And when we talk about souls, we're talking about the full dimension of a soul. Each soul has three intellects and seven emotions. Each soul has three garments through which it expresses itself, thought, speech, and action. So basically... Your body is, so to speak, a lifeless vessel that only gets to choose. We'll talk about who does the choosing later. But only gets to choose one thing. Whose conduit will I be? Will I be the conduit of the godly soul who's telling me to pray? Or will I be the conduit of the animalistic soul who's telling me to gossip? So there I am sitting in shul. And I'm hearing two voices. so on one hand the lips even the brain the three lobes of the brain from this perspective is an empty cup when you decide what to think science now knows that you read the, the quantum physics they very clearly separate the mind from the brain when the mind is thinking that manifests itself within the brain which shoots off different neural fire neural pathway fires But the bottom line is that on one hand, that mass of a brain, it's just an empty cup. And then you will decide what you're going to think. Am I going to think virtuous thoughts or am I going to think non-virtuous thoughts? My lips are lifeless. I'm going to now just decide what I'm going to use them for. Am I going to use them to talk gossip or am I going to use them to talk Goodness. So, before the Alteneba begins this, Tanya, no one would think that there's actually two complete identities within me. We always thought that the Yitzhahara and the Yitzhah Tov are not two complete separate identities that just happen to land into my body. We just think that I'm made up of both. But here we're very clear that there's two souls. Two complete souls. Now the question is why? Now what I'm going to suggest is, is because the Alter Rebbe is not allowing us to think that we're playing that game. Where it's the same ball that sometimes will land on red and sometimes will land on black and there's got to be some way of figuring out scientifically what the chances is and what the percentage is going to be. Because it's not one ball just rolled. There is a me who has two souls and I need to decide consistently which soul am I going to become do conduit for. Now, I wanna just take it to one more level. What is the core difference between these two souls? What is it that has this soul always focusing the egocentric. And we'll talk, we'll talk further um, in the next class. The Altareba clearly defines that. He quotes Maimonides, who actually quotes Aristotle, he quotes him Aristov, that the world is made up, everything is made up of four elements. So the soul is also made up of four elements. He clearly defines how the animalistic soul, the four elements: the fire, the ear, the water, the earth, those four elements. Each one has its impact on the characteristics of the soul. So he goes on to explain that the animalistic soul, its characteristics, because of its four elements. So he talks about how fire, for example, represents anger, ego. It's always going upwards. He talks about how air represents vanity. It has no tangibility. about how water is always about pleasure seeking fulfilling pleasure and it it talks about how the earth element is always about depression laziness now these four elements if you just noticed all of their characteristics that I spoke about were not complementary Simply speaking, they were something we want not to have. No one wants to have to have anger management issues. No one wants to live in a life of frivolity and vanity. No one wants to live their life and always trying to fulfill their pleasure seeking. And definitely no one wants to be lazy and depressed. So what decides that these four elements are specifically of negative nature? The animalistic soul is not a negative being. Someone who kills their animalistic soul has killed half their being. So what is it? Mind you, it does talk about that King David said he killed his animalistic soul. His heart is dead within him. Abraham says that he transformed. But for right now, for us, just to understand, we need both these souls. And if we need both these souls, I want to know why is one always telling me to do the right thing and why is the other always telling me to do the bad thing. When we call it the animalistic soul, we're not calling it the evil inclination. The evil inclination is not the animalistic soul. The evil inclination is the offshoot of the animalistic soul when we let it get out of hand. So what I want to share with you tonight is just this one theme. When we talk about the animalistic soul and the godly soul, we're talking about the core essence of the binary code. In Chabad Chasidis, the binary code equals one thing egocentric, selfish, theocentric, selfless. The godly soul is egocentric and it's selfish. I'm sorry. Thank you. The animalistic soul, thank you. The animalistic soul is egocentric and selfish. Now, I want to just share with you that when I say egocentric selfish in this class, I'm not using it as a bad thing. Let's talk about the Talmud. Two people are going in the desert, and each these are one of them only has one canteen of water. They're both at a state of total dehydration. If they both share the water, they both die. If one drinks the water, one lives and the the other dies. Who's supposed to drink the water? And the answer is the person who owns the canteen needs to drink the water. And if that person is going to be selfless, you know, let's play the music to the Titanic here. Um, I'm going to die and you're going to not freeze. You should know that when he comes to heaven, he will be charged for murder. Suicide is a form of murder. Now, isn't that egocentric? (laughs) Your life comes first. Well, one second. If I'm selfless and we're all all a piece of God, then why my being a piece of God is more important than your being a piece of God? Let me die and you go on. Because it is meant to be that the person every creature is egocentric. I'm going to talk about that more in a moment, but I want to share with you. This is not humans. This is nature. I visited Yosemite Park. And while you're looking at all the beautiful big sequoia trees and the little trees, and you think that everything is so beautiful, what you really find out when you take the tour is that there is a war going on. There's a war going on for two things height for sun, and roots for water. They are literally trying to kill each other. And by the way, while we thought that the most important thing in the world is to save the trees from forest fires, we now found out that forest fires is a way to go ahead and balance. A sequoia falls down, it breaks our heart. But you just made room for the other trees who aren't as strong and as big as a sequoia. Everything that goes on in the forest is always a balance. There's too many gazelles. Along comes their predators. Too many predators. There's no more gazelles to feed them. They start dying out. The gazelles start going up. There is in every aspect of human nature, of the world's nature, of the universe, there is consistently the fight for survival. If you go ahead And take a plant and bring it into your house. You put it by the window, it will face the sun. If you go ahead and you turn it around, it will face the sun. It will turn itself around. Survival is the deepest genetics that there is in any single creature. Survival is a form of egocentrism. I must go on. There is no malice in the animal kingdom. There is no malice in Yosemite Park. There's just your genetic drive for survival. I want to take this one step further. When you learn in Kabbalah and in Hasidism there's the word called tzimtzum, contraction. Everyone becomes a whole Kabbalist the minute they find out the word tzimtzum. Because tzimtzum is a secret of creation. What's symptom all about? Contract, reversal of the light, and this and that, and the light within the light, the expression of the light, the essence of the light, the infinite light, the finite light. It's all mumble-jumble. In this class, we're going to focus on talking modern language. There's only one thing that symptom was meant to do. It was meant to place a one-way mirror between creator and creation. That is all that symptom does a one-way mirror. If you want to know where you're going to see that one-way mirror, look at the Sefer Torah. The first letter of the Sefer Torah is a bet. Now, the shape of a bet is like that. The Torah is written this way. Just look what happens. It's closed off. We can only see from the first moment of creation on. We can never see What's before voracious? What you're actually seeing is a one-way mirror. For God that stands here, this is a window. He's just seeing everything. For us, the whole universe that's standing here, all we're seeing is a mirror. Now I want to show you how far symptom worked perfectly. What does it mean if I tell you there's a one-way mirror? What it means is that when I look up, who do I see? Myself. Really? I look up to heaven, I pray to God. I don't pray to myself. But think for a moment. What is our perception of God? Our perception of God is He who created me. One of the hardest things to give a class on is to explain that God is not a creator. Because that would be a description. That would be idolatry. I shared with you once in the other class forum, I shared with you once that this lady wrote to the Rebbe and she was introducing herself. Never met the Rebbe, never wrote the letters. The first time she's writing to the Rebbe, blessed memory. And what does she write? She's describing herself. And I am a secretary. And one of the parts of the Rebbe's response was, no, you're not a secretary. You're a Jewish woman. Who earns a livelihood through the service of a secretary? But you are not a secretary. Now let's apply that to God. God is not a creator. Let me ask you a question. And if God is a creator, then what was God before He created the world? A potential God? So God's creating the world was an action. Of God. And through that action. We call him a creator. Just like when you're in your office. Serving as a doctor. We call you doctor. But when you go home. And your wife screams at you. For dropping the socks on the floor again. She's not telling you doctor. You dropped your socks. To her you're not a doctor. To her you're a husband. To the kids you're a father. So God to us. When we're egocentric and we only see what God means to us, God is a creator. Thus, when we look up to Bereshit, we look up to where did I come from? The answer is God. Most of us, because we're egocentric, we never try to figure out further than that. What is God beyond being my creator? What is God unto himself? That's something that we never think of. Because once again, the most powerful genetic drive I have is me, 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 me. Thus, even when I love God, what is the first teaching when it says, love God your God with all your heart? Our commentaries tell us, love God because he's your life. Again, egocentric. Look at the people you love. I was to tell you that there's an exact carbon copy of the person you love who lives in China. You would not love that one in China. The reason you love this one is because this one is in your life. So the love is not about who they are, because if you love them for who they are, what's the difference if you know them? Or you just heard that there is such an existence like this in China, who I never met, I never will meet, and I'll never benefit from. Everything, if you think about it, because of symptom, everything focuses around me. My love for God is around me. My love for other humans is around me. My actions is around me. Thus, in the next class, the theme that we're going to talk about is, is it possible to do any good? That's not for me. Now, I'm not talking about the fact that I have to have my name on the building. In order for me to sponsor it. I'm not talking about that I want to make sure that you know what I'm doing for you. Let's even say that I'm giving it to you without you knowing. One of the greatest levels of charity. There is the egocentrism that I feel good. I don't know if I would be giving anyone charity. Even without them knowing it. If I didn't feel good. And even if I don't feel good. The mere fact that I studied the yeshiva to know. That if I don't feel good and I give charity, I'm really super good. That makes me feel good. And thus, there's a very interesting story with the Baal Shem Tov. The Baal Shem Tov had a woman who kept on asking her over and over, promise me a child. You're a tzaddik. If you promise me, God will fulfill it. One year, the Baal Shem Tov gave in and promised. Immediately, they notified him from heaven that he knew good and well that this woman was not supposed to have a child. The Talmud says that a tzaddik decrees and God listens. So now we have to give her a child because of you. You're not allowed to play those games. You know that. So therefore you're forfeited your entire world to come. The Baal Shemda started dancing. They asked him from heaven, why are you dancing? Huh. Heaven is not a small thing. The Garden of Eden is not a small thing. And he said, because as long as I knew that I'm getting the Garden of Eden as selfless as I was in doing mitzvahs, something in me still knew that this is an investment. It's not a selfless act. I do good here. I get paid up there. Now that you, I know for a fact that heaven took away my heaven, I will not have any paradise from the work I'm doing. I can finally embrace doing good without any focus of reward, or focus of investment. And thus, ultimately, our egocentric, animalistic soul is programmed that all it ever does in life is investment. And thus, again, the next week, we're going to be discussing a Talmudic statement that sounds very harsh and very racist at the end of chapter one. But I want to just focus here on one thing. Know the binary code that drives through Tanya. Egocentric, theocentric, yesh, Ian, Something, nothing. Now let's talk about the godly soul. For all practical purposes, for right now, we're going to say that the godly soul did not go through the process of transformation through the gym zone. So let's look at the godly soul as a pre-symptom existence that's amongst us without being processed through symptom, So there is no one-way mirror between the soul and God. There's nothing more than a window. Or if you want to look at it this way, look at it as God sticking His hand outside of the window. The hand outside of the window is a piece of God, regardless of where He puts it. So picture in your mind, as it would be, that all the souls, the godly souls, are pieces of God that He stuck into outside of the window. Because for the soul of God, the base is a window, not a one-way mirror. Thus, the godly soul never went through that transformation of identity. The entire notion of separation doesn't exist for the godly soul. Thus, when you look at the godly soul, you're not going to see the godly soul because the godly soul is complete transparency. Thus, the godly soul sees itself as nothing more than a piece of God. Therefore, the godly soul is genetically selfless. We'll talk in chapter 2, different levels of the soul, different types of souls within each soul, different levels. We'll talk about all of that when the time comes. But I'm just giving you a foundation to what we're at. The binary code. If you really look carefully at chapter one, when he's explaining to you that a Benini is not one ball that sometimes flips on the red and sometimes flips on the the black, but rather it's two different balls. One is always on the red. One is always on the black. You need to choose which ball you want to play with. That's all there is. And if you choose to always play with the godly soul, it will always land on the theocentric. If you choose to play with the animalistic soul, it will always land on the egocentric. The big challenge question that we're going to get to after we explain in the full dimension what a godly soul is and what an animal. A holistic soul is and all the parts of a godly soul and all the parts of an animalistic soul, the big question is going to be who's the one who chooses? If the brain is but a lifeless gray mass that becomes dominated by a mind of a life force, who chooses which ball to play with? We'll talk about that. An interesting argument between a grandfather and a grandson. Dr. rebbe gives one answer, the Tamah is gives a different answer. But free will means that there's someone choosing. So if you didn't learn pshat like the Alter Rebbe, if you learn that there's one person, and he has one ball, and he has to decide where to throw the ball, okay, freedom of choice. But if you're telling me that the godly soul has no freedom of choice, he's always theocentric. The animalistic soul has no freedom of choice. He's always egocentric. So someone has to choose which bowl to pick up. That's what we're going to see. But what we now do know is that the definition of a bainani is someone who has wired his brain to always pick up the godly soul bowl. I'm going to throw you a story, which actually a cute story to show you how complicated this gets and how simple it's resolved. There was a chassid who was laying in bed. And all of a sudden, he wants to have a drink of water. It's a famous chassid. One that really worked himself over. Talking about the people who dive into meditation for hours. They live the holy life. Now he's thinking to himself, what? I spend my whole life learning Tanya and Davani to act on eskafia. Eskafia means to make subordinate, to bend over. You want? Don't do what you want. It's not about what you want. So I'm going to get out of bed for a cup of water. I already said, Shema, I'm going to bed. I didn't say I'm apple. I'm still allowed to drink. But I, I'm, I'm done. Why should I get up just go I want a cup of water? I'll drink tomorrow. All of a sudden he realizes, whoa, 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 whoa one second, one second. Am I not getting out of bed because I'm trying to be selfless and I can do it to the godly soul? Or am I starting to train myself, God forbid, with laziness? Because the minute you let that worm in, it grows very quickly to be a snake. Now he doesn't know what to do. Now he's trying to torture himself by asking himself which choice is coming from which voice. He doesn't know. The chassid got out of bed, went to the kitchen, filled up a cup of water and put it down on the counter and went back to bed. Not torture. Not torture. (laughs) These, These chassidim did not live the life of abnegation being moved. These chassidim were very quick to dance with joy because their life was filled with joy. So this wasn't torture. He wasn't torturing himself. Very different how we would do it. When you come from an egocentric point of view that I have to do what's right and I have to score the right points, then there's stress involved. And you're frustrated when you get up and you fill the water and you put it down with a bang on the counter, you're happy? That's not what these chisidim do. These chisidim saw everything as an opportunity. I have a chance to get closer to my goal because the more I can train the neural pathways in my mind to be naturally in sync, the theocentric godly soul, the more free I'll be to be myself. Just give you an example. When I go to the gym, I crex, and I'm really frustrated. When these other guys go to the gym, and I hear them screaming and dropping the weights because they're falling, they're laughing. They're as happy as could be. Because to them, it's what they're looking for. It's not a pain. That's what they want. So I'm not saying I see them want pain off a it. I'm saying Hasidim see an opportunity. We need to grow, so let's just bring it back together. Gotta to be on time. Now. Let's bring it back together. The Alter is setting a foundation to his whole book, and if you don't look at it from this perspective, you don't see that Alter Rebbe is clearly setting you up a binary code, and he's setting you up in a position to know that the reason why. Bainini means someone who never sins is because it's not one person with one soul that's swinging either way it's two complete absolute souls the absolute soul of theocentric selflessness and the soul of absolute egocentric selfishness and why is it that way because one is part and parcel of the universe Thus, he went through the bet of Tsim Thus, he stuck with a one-way mirror. He cannot see that God is everything and everything is God. And therefore, an atheist is a piece of God telling God that doesn't exist. A rebellious child is a piece of God telling God, I'm not listening to you. He doesn't see that. He really sees it. That he is in existence. Kind of what like I mentioned yesterday in the class. Pharaoh really meant what he said. He wasn't messing. He said who is God that I should listen to him? Give me an answer. I'm not taunting God. But who is God that I should listen to him? God has an opinion. I'll take an consideration. But I have an opinion. And Pharaoh was then the king of the entire civilized world. They all paid homage to him. All the other kings. So we look at it as evil powers, the evil, yeah, power to take it to another dimension of egocentric, arrogant, narcissism. But let's just talk about that. He wasn't being wrong. So it is for everyone who has been through the birth canal called symptom. On the other hand, the theocentric, godly soul is not making sacrifices. There's an interesting line from the Rebbe in one of his. Memorum. and he says this line if you see when you give him the choice of self-sacrifice let's go to the Spanish at the will you convert or live or will you not convert and die the Rebbe has an amazing line in one of his teachings in my that says if you heard two choices you will never make the right choice If converting and living is a choice, it's impossible for you to choose not not to do that. Now, again, it gets very complicated because so many people died for their countries. Why wouldn't a Jew die for God? But that itself has to be by egocentrism. A person who dies for his country feeling a hero is one thing. That's not what we're talking about. If you heard that there's an option that I am somebody... I need to take care of myself, i.e. egocentric, it's impossible to make the selfless choice. Now let's go to the godly soul. The reason why the godly soul always lands on the theocentric hole is because he never hears two choices. He just doesn't hear two choices. If everything is God and God is everything, and there's no one-way mirror, then he hears no choice. He literally hears... Here's a piece of God telling God I don't believe in you it doesn't make sense to him that's the focus of Tanya the binary code there is no two gray areas there's two absolute areas there's the selflessness theocentric and then there's the selfish egocentric that's all for today thank you can i ask you can i ask you a question about